The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good early evening, everyone from New York City. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's program is one in a series of programs and discussions that we have had in the past on the topic of bioarchaeology. Uh, very many people associate bioarchaeology with human anatomy, the evolution of the human form, the development of hominids or, or uh, creatures that walk on two, and the types of uh, uh, stages in the human career that allowed us to evolve in systematic fashion. Um, one of the topics that we want to discuss, and we're going to get more into over the course of several programs, I believe, is more recent developments. And what I'm talking about here is the past 10,000 years and subsequent, the period that many of you know we that we have identified as the Holocene. And uh, there are some very sophisticated techniques associated with the differentiation of human peoples and the uh, identification of very long-standing human diseases and how they evolve, how they spread. And my guest on today's program is an expert in this field. And this is Dr. Kate Pechenkina, who is an associate professor of anthropology at Queens College here in New York City. Uh, Dr. Pechenkina was uh, born in Tashkent and graduated from Moscow State University with a master's degree in biology and anthropology. And she came to the United States very shortly thereafter and pursued her graduate training at the University of Missouri-Columbia and has been working extensively in Peru and subsequently and more recently in China. She received her Ph.D. in 2002 from the University of Missouri and then joined the faculty at Queens College in 2003. And from what I understand, she is anticipating a move to Australia National University in the next couple of weeks. So we're very happy that we have caught her before she departs. And so it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Kate Pachenkina. Thank you very much for appearing on the program. 
Um, hello, everyone. Well, thank you, Joe, for this very nice introduction. So let us start with your career path and your development. How did you get into bioarchaeology and how and paleopathology subsequently? Oh, well, that's... Uh, I wish I could give you a proper answer about having a foresight about how interesting it was going to become and how I would learn about lives of early people and how important human diseases of the past are. But, of course... As a young person who was 20 years old long ago, I didn't have such thoughts, uh, and I came into bioarchaeology for all the wrong reasons, probably. I, I entered university planning to be a biologist, hard, hardcore biologist, biochemist, genetics, discovering how cell works. But then when it came time to select my major, I thought... To myself, well, I can already very well see how my life will play out as a biochemist. I'll be wearing that lab coat, I will be in a sparkling lab, and I will be working with cell cultures, something like that. So maybe that life or that career is not worth going for. I already lived it in my mind. Why don't I go for something that I don't know where it's going to take me? something that will take me completely out of my comfort zone. I was always squeamish, so anatomy, something to defeat my squeamishness. <laughs> and uh, then I was also a very introvert person. I'm still an introvert person. I'm speaking right now, talking to, to you. So uh, something anthropology really makes you to connect with people and go places and meet people who have very different life experiences. And uh, I actually, as a young person, I didn't like travel and didn't like camping. So why not pursue a career that would force me to, to travel and camp and see places? So that was the reasoning. And then, of course, in hindsight, came the recognition of how mesmerizing human skeleton is. You can just get completely lost in your thoughts looking at a human skeleton and going from, from skull to teeth to toes and trying to imagine how the life of that person played out very long ago. Just before we get into this in, in detail, it just dawns on me, and I'm very interested in this, and, and I think a lot of other people will be interested in, how was your training in, in uh, the Soviet Union at that time? Um, was there an emphasis on human biology? Was anthropology, and specifically physical anthropology, a topic that was uh, well-schooled in, in, in the Soviet Union, in Moscow in particular? Was there a good program development for that? Yeah, there was actually an excellent program. Well, the academic structure of uh, former Soviet Union and now Russia is quite different. So when you enter college, you already enter a school, and I entered School of Biology that was split into multiple departments. Close to 100, you had the department in plant pathology, zoology, vertebrate zoology, invertebrate zoology, genetics, biochemistry, plant physiology, anything you can imagine in biology, there was a department for. There was a department in anthropology, 
for anthropology, but it was understood strictly as biological anthropology. So my training was very strongly geared towards human biology there, not a four-field anthropology as in the United States. Did they have cultural anthropology over there? Did they have archaeology and were they separate programs? Or? Well, cultural anthropology was called ethnography and was stationed uh, at the history department. Mm-hmm. And we were required to take some courses at the department of ethnography. And there was a department of uh, archaeology also in, history, in the history school under the umbrella of history school. And uh, we did take and we, we had to go for field school in archaeology I excavated a couple times there and uh, take some courses there as well. So there was some cross-discipline training, but it was still very strongly biological. But you said in your introductory statements that you were a little squeamish about biology, so I'm assuming that the exposure that you did have to archaeology sort of raised your interest, if you wish, uh, if you will, rather, to merge the two fields and to look at human biology in an archaeological context. I'm assuming that there was a connection there. Well, yes, and... uh Archaeology is also a very squeamish profession, if you think ah, about it. <laughs> you too. have to stand right with that. the screen yeah. Yeah, and dust and dig, uh, choosing between um, smelly old bodies and anatomy <laughs> and digging in dirt. <laughs> um, I'm not so sure. But uh, I wanted to look at human skeletons from the past and uh, more recent humans than... Uh, you know, Australopithecus or Neanderthals. So you're looking at, at later differentiation and really humans in a very, very cultural milieu uh, in, in, in sort of a setting where there was differentiation and where you could uh, actually look at populations for which there was a fair amount of data. So how did you get started? How did your field work get started? Uh, oh, did certainly, it- yeah. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I actually started in Russia. I excavated a couple times and there were a few interesting uh, skeletal series. One of them was from the steppe area, the huge open grassland, uh, which uh, runs uh, from Europe to Asia, includes uh, Mongolia, southern Siberia, southern portions of Europe, and uh, people of the Bronze Age that lived in that steppe, in that open grassland, mostly herders, they used horses, eventually adopted domesticated horses, was such a, a migratory community where probably a person within one lifespan went from uh, parts of Western Europe to East Asia, riding the horseback. And already there, there were some very interesting pathological skeletons that I liked. And then, actually, I looked at some golden horde uh, skeletons uh, very briefly, also back in Russia. And uh, in 1993, I decided that I want to, I want to see what anthropology is like somewhere else. Started to apply to graduate schools in the United States, actually in Australia as well, but they didn't accept me. 
<laughs> that must have been difficult. But you were already thinking about migrating and 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 opening up the pathway for your study um, in in uh, in the United States. And uh, I assume that uh, your research in the central in the Central Asian area uh, gave you a little bit more focus on what you wanted to do. Mm, to some degree. Uh, you probably don't want to get into politics of collapsing Soviet Union oh, and I think it's uh, interesting. lack of funding and recognition uh, that uh, you need to, if you want to continue being a, a scholar, you need to travel. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, just uh, borders opening. I grew up as a child in a country where nobody ever went abroad, and suddenly, well, few people for a week, for 10 days, a short business trip, Uh, but a possibility to go into the outer world and see how people approach similar research questions, it was very interesting. Many of my friends went to graduate school in... um, Israel and United States and Singapore uh, and Europe. Uh, it was common at that time. This is uh, post perestroika. Once that everything yeah. opened up, we are talking 1993-1994. Very interesting. Well, we will get back to our very fascinating discussion with uh, Dr. Kate Pechinkina uh, after these words. We'll be right back. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host, Jordan Kimmel, is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. Join host James Robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests. You'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of. It will educate, titillate, and enlighten your mind. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening.
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Can you We're back and we're having a fascinating discussion with Dr. Kate Pachankina from Queens College here in New York City. And the topic is bioarchaeology, which, as I said earlier in the program, is a topic that we have touched upon several occasions, uh, primarily in our discussions of human evolution and upright upright walking, bipedalism, and the evolution of the human form. Uh, Dr. Pachenkina is more involved in uh, later populations, Holocene, post-10,000 BP, and I would like to pose this question to you, if you would, if I could. How does bioarchaeology generally enhance our understanding of the human past in your, uh, in your framework? All right. Well, I, I feel that without bioarchaeology, our past would be completely devoid of humans. We have historical documents, but they generally talk about people of some prominence, and there is lots of legend involved if you look at even fairly recent documents. And then if you look at material culture, uh, stone tools and pottery and textile, you learn about technological change, you can learn about global society changes, but really the daily routine of people, how did they live? Did they brush their teeth? When did they start having their children? How did they sit? Did they sit on a chair? Did they squat? Did they suffer? What were their diseases like? Uh, what their life like? Uh, because in part because of historical documents, uh, in part because just certain ideas appeal to people, uh, there are so many misconceptions about the past. Uh, we are not even quite sure how long people lived in the past. Uh, it seems to be suggested that people didn't live maybe past 30, that mortality was high, that very few children survived. A uh, few people lived past 30. A 25 person might have looked very old. But do we really know this for sure? And uh, to what extent we were influenced by very recent history of Europe, urban Europe, uh, where infectious diseases were very common, sanitation was horrendous, work was hard, and there was not enough food, and in addition, all the violence and warfare associated, and uh, there maybe people died very early, uh, but if you take a farming village or a small nomadic tribe, uh, people don't necessarily need to die that early. Would, what would they die from? Uh, they might have had a fairly healthy happy life and uh, live to ripe old age just as they live right now. 
So what can you tell us based on the populations that you've studied? For example, uh, your work in China and your work in Peru. What kind of misconceptions would you think would be uh, sort of surprising to a lot of people who are making these assumptions that people lived very, very short lifespans? And um, how can uh, how can bioarchaeology teach us about this? I mean, let's assume uh, that for generally in the Western world, if we talk about writing, uh, writing itself, even the earliest parts of the old world, though it doesn't go back much more than 4,000, 5,000 years. What can you tell us about your types of studies, your methods, and, and, and what kind of conclusions that you reach based on your examine, uh, examination of uh, skeletons and pathology? Well, uh, for one thing, in the Neolithic China, people certainly live to an old age. I find uh, skeletons of males who lost virtually all their teeth and still lived, and their gums are healed, and maybe they have one little tooth. They're very worn to bite into something, and somebody is feeding them. People could survive very severe fractures and uh, lose a leg and still survive and live, maybe have a cane there. Um, I see women with uh, osteoporosis, with bones that are so thin that are almost like paper thin. So a woman was probably on a bed rest for a very long period of time and still lived. Uh, So certainly people... Once they survive to reproductive age, could live to be very old. What's very old? Well, that's an interesting question. Methods in bioarchaeology don't quite let you estimate age reliably past 50. And once you reach age 50, it's a guesswork. So I could speculate that they lived into 80s or 90s, but I don't really have factual support for that because but, there are no techniques for, but for that's, estimating. I think that's very surprising. I think a lot of people would be shocked by that, that they even range to age 50, and you can say with a certain amount of assurance and accuracy that in the areas that you've examined and that you've studied, populations that you've studied, that significant proportions of those populations even reached age 50? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was actually very surprised. I think you mentioned that before coming to China, I worked in Peru. And in agricultural Peru 2,000 years ago, I was very accustomed to seeing lots of skeletons of young individuals. Mm-hmm. And I expected the same in China. Uh, but then when I came to China, a uh, few early Neolithic uh, collections dating to 7,000 years ago, most of people were old. Young people were actually a rarity there. Uh, so I'd say most of them, unless they died as children, uh, Finding children is tricky. That's a separate issue specifically for China. They're they're buried differently. But once they live into adulthood, most of them survive past age of 50 and then simply mathematically 
some of them should survive to age 80 because you don't expect them all to drop dead at the age of 50, right? Yes. There yes, should yes. be some mortality curve. So of course. Definitely some of them are quite old. So how do you, to what do you attribute the variability between these two uh, populations? Was one a warlike people? Was the other uh, a non-warlike people? Did they have different adaptive strategies? Was their organization different? Their economies, subsistence economies were different? How do you explain this? All right. Well, in true, uh, with uh, populations I was working with, I was studying, I think the main source of diet is maize. Mm-hmm. Right. And maize is very deficient in many nutrients. Uh, it's a nice carbohydrate source, but it has very little iron. Its protein composition is very messed up, and it's devoid <laughs> of many vitamins. And I think this fixation on corn might be one of the reasons. Second, there are... I think there is quite a bit of crowding, a fairly dense population centers where I worked dating to 2,000 years ago. And that may be another reason and spread of infectious diseases. I don't want necessarily to say syphilis, but there was quite a bit of infectious syphilis-like diseases there that can account for high mortality rates. Early childbirth might play a factor. Um, there is an interesting uh, study on mummies from South America by Ariaza uh, that actually with mummies you can see fetuses stuck in the womb and uh, partially delivered, so you can actually compute uh, childbirth-associated death. Uh, so mortality in childbirth might have been a factor. Uh, in China, during the Neolithic, there is still quite a bit of um, foraging, fishing, hunting. Uh, they grow millet. But you know, one of the interesting discoveries that I made, and uh, toward the end of graduate school, I published a paper on that, that millet was uh, maybe uh, grown to support domesticated animals rather than to be used as a human food source. Maybe both. But we did chemical analysis on pigs in China and dogs in China, mm -hmm. and their chemical signatures show that they're fed lots of cereals. So maybe cereals are to support, how, how are you going to grow your pigs? Uh, some of it can be just whatever you didn't finish at the dinner, uh, but early societies are thrifty, so most of the food gets eaten. You want to raise a pig, you need to procure it with something. So grow a little cereal, which doesn't require much care, and then feed it to your pig. So humans can have very diverse diets. So I, I think one of the interesting things that you're pointing out to is that uh, certainly here in the New World, these were indigenous diseases. I mean, syphilis or syphilis-like phenomena, we would, uh, a lot of people are assuming are a function of Euro-Americanization. Euro you're saying that didn't happen. And that, uh, that uh, or maybe it did happen, but, but certainly these types of diseases had precedent in indigenous populations. Oh, sure, oh, sure. There, there, are, there are lots of studies showing, first of all, presence of tuberculosis. 
It has been documented with DNA, with mummified tissues, with skeletons. There are classical indigenous and in South American and North America cases of tuberculosis. Uh, from uh, fossilized feces, poop, uh, we find all kinds of um, intestinal parasites, just tapeworms or roundworms, uh, of course, and uh, syphilis-like diseases, whether it's venereal syphilis is contradictory, but it was quite common in collection that I was looking at, and remember, it's 2,000 years ago. Of course, yeah. Uh, sig- signatures of, I don't want to say trypanematosis, few people know what it is, but signatures of syphilis-like trypanematosis diseases, they are they're rather exuberant. Your bones can foam, so you see these rough bones, especially TBS, thin yeah, bones. Um, right. Thigh bones, they're covered in that, so it's definitely present and not rare. Mm-hmm. We will be back in a few minutes with our very fascinating discussion on uh, the pathology of diseases, the uh, connections between human subsistence patterns and survival and the longevity of human people of humans with our special guests uh dr kate pachinkina after these words stay tuned the internet's number one talk station number one talk station VoiceAmerica.com Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, Hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Reality at gmail.com. 
Now, back to the program. We're back with a very unique episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. And we are talking about bioarchaeology, the spread of diseases in particular, and diets, and how these human, how, how subsistence resources and demographics, to some degree, affect uh, the quality of life of early peoples and the nature of disease and its uh, transformation and spread. I think uh, we were getting into a very interesting topic, and I raised the top uh, the issue with with my guest, Dr. Pachenkina, uh, that it seems like um, in earlier times, and specifically in the latter phases of hunter and gathering, uh, as opposed to sort of early uh, complex societies, if you will, or contact societies, um, there there seemed to be uh, a greater lifespan amongst, uh, certainly amongst the Chinese, where uh, significant portions of the population extended beyond 50 years old, which I think is a surprise in and of itself. And of course, she said this is a much more complicated situation, and uh, she pointed out that uh, look at Europe and uh, that the fact that so much crowding may have led to to disease. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about how your studies are uh, basically debunking a lot of the thoughts that we've had about uh, human, about uh, pathology and uh, how people's subsistence patterns were associated with ancient, with uh, with diseases and and how uh, these types of contexts changed through time and across space. In some areas they spread and other areas they did not. Well, uh I'm not sure to what extent my research debunks the myths. It, it makes me think about them and challenge them, but I'm probably far from debunking them. Uh, I think we, we probably should stay away from overgeneralizations, and uh, at certain settings, uh, human uh, populations, early human populations, might have had very low mortality rates, uh, especially if they if they might maintain diverse diet, if the population density wasn't particularly high, if uh, the society recognized the importance of sanitation, the concept of sanitation. That's actually interesting. Uh, I go quite a bit on hiking trips, and uh, they make you think about how early people lived. Uh, so... Uh, if, if you go on a hiking trip and you try to establish a small settlement, so imagine you're a group of nomads, uh, you settle down. What's your first? What's your first problem? The first challenge that you encounter when you settle down. I guess I'm asking. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, food, food. Uh, food uh, you'll deplete eventually, but not right away. If if you if you settled on uh, a bank of a river, you can fish. Uh, sure. Fish is going to be there, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So there there is something uh, you'll encounter much earlier within within just a couple of days. Shelter. Shelter you build, and actually, the longer you live, the more elaborate constructions you can right, make. Right. Right. Uh, so, I guess I'm going to answer. It's um, trash, garbage, mm-hmm. feces, urine, right. 
at first you came to this pristine area, it's very clean, and uh, you go to the shrubbery and do your business, and you come out. Of course. But after your group stayed there for a little bit, there will be feces everywhere, and you produce trash, and you produce ash, and you produce cracked bones and unfinished food. Mm-hmm. And uh, it took humans uh, a while to figure out how to deal with it. Uh, but once latrine areas are established, and uh, they become established fairly early on, pigs help to clean up that quite a, quite a bit. Uh, Chinese have those famous uh, pig toilets, where a toilet is combined with a sty for a pig. Right, so pig grows by eating some feces, but they actually clean the area. Mm-hmm. Are we... Running out of time? No, no, no. That's no. fine. But, so, you know, <coughs> yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, this is all those fast. factors can contribute uh, to longer lifespan of humans, maintaining good hygiene, diverse diet, as long as your community remains fairly small. Right. But but this goes back to the topic. I, are you familiar with uh, Marshall Salins' book, Stone Age Economics? Of course. Well... His thesis in, in, in a lot of that was, you know what? Prehistoric hunter-gatherers did not have it so bad. I mean, because of population density and because of, of the fact that, uh, that they made those adjustments. And essentially, there was a bounty of foodstuffs, and they utilized them. And, and because, uh, it, presumably, population density wasn't that great, then those conditions that you're talking about, uh, trash disposal, sanitation conditions, those were manageable situations, by and large. And, and that our assumption that they had to really work hard for procuring foodstuffs and subsistence resources. That's met. That's not necessarily true. They were able to do this, and uh, because their numbers were relatively low, um, they could manage. And, and is it just simply a product of crowding, of, of growing into more complex societies that we get into these situations? Yeah. I mean, what's, you know, what's your... Joe, I, I, I largely agree with this statement, but then we have... A reverse question. If the sure. life was so good for hunter-gatherers, why did their population stay so small? Uh, what was happening? What was controlling their population? Mm-hmm. So if you live in a clean environment, your children wouldn't die, right? Why would Correct. children die? They have food. Sure. Right. Uh, may- maybe you use some form of birth control, possible. Again, mm. not so difficult to figure out, but... Right. Um, uh, why why does population, you have three kids per generation and your growth is exponential and uh, you're not a typical hunter-gatherer anymore? Right. Uh, so I quite think that there was, there was a lot of difference between societies. Some were successful, some not. And there were probably catastrophic events that... Uh, population would grow for a while, and then either massacre or really desperate famine or right. a new epidemic that just wiped a large proportion of people out. Right. In China, I actually examined one site from the Neolithic where we probably see evidence of massacre. And just like in Midwest 
in America in native communities. Uh, it's uh, what we found are pits with bodies, but those bodies are mostly bodies of young males whose heads were bashed with stones. And mm-hmm. the women were probably taken as wives, as servants. Children were probably taken. Uh, so it's mostly young men who are trouble anyway, so they're killed. And a few elderly women who nobody wanted to care about are disposed of. Everyone else is taken away. And uh, that's a known profile for native communities, indigenous communities of uh, North America. And we found one such instance in China. I think that's a, a sort of a reality that hasn't even changed all that much. Oh, no. Uh, that's something that has survived cultural transformation and geographic uh, geographic displacements, and it's, it's basically sustained itself, unfortunately, as, as we well know. So human behavior in that sense seems to repeat itself. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's, it's quite universal. It is quite universal. I think that's one of the, uh, it's interesting because a lot of, I mean, one of the uh, common, uh, and I won't call it a myth because it's not entirely a myth, but certainly one of the common perceptions that's trying to be turned on its head is that everything changed in the Americas once the Europeans came here. Now, to some degree, that's true, but it's certainly not universal, and we have a lot of information now that's providing this type of explanation that, that you're talking about, that these types of um, warfares and the struggle for uh, disappearing resources is something that has characterized society for a really long time. And certainly as we grow into more complex societies with, uh, with scarcer resources. So uh, you're finding that obviously, and, and you know, we have been generalizing quite a bit, that there is a, a lot of variability here as well. Yes, yes. And tell us about your Peruvian study. Uh, it sounds fairly fascinating. Um, it was a small community. Was it a sort of a, a, a society that was pretty self self contained, or what? Oh no, it's a it's a large community, uh, right where Lima is located now. Uh, so on the central coast of Peru, uh, the site is called Villa El Salvador. Mm-hmm. Uh, was uh, I published a paper on it describing how cranial artificial head shaping, artificial cranial deformation, was used either as ethnicity or occupation marker. Mm-hmm. And I seem to have found that uh, maybe there were two very distinct groups in that society, uh, I suggested a few possibilities that maybe one was uh, more bound to the high altitudes, uh, mm-hmm. mountains, and another was the uh, a very low-level, um, low-altitude uh, farming people. Uh, but they shaped their heads quite differently. Uh, so, 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 so cranial shapes in Peru are mm-hmm. interesting. And... Uh, by extension, uh, the profile of diseases was also quite different. The low-level community had uh, somewhat more iron deficiencies, maybe connected to just heavier parasitic loads or connected to eating so much maize, so much corn, uh, while uh, people with rounded head uh, maybe benefited from cleaner environment. 
uh, Deborah Blom ex- explored similar idea in a in a slightly different setting. And we will be back with our final segment after these words. Stay tuned. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. There is a species that remains undiscovered by modern science. This species is known by many names, but most commonly known as... Bigfoot. Join Todd Standing and Dr. Jeff Meldrum for Bigfoot North, a program that sets out to uncover the species that has eluded modern science, but that does truly exist. Expert and celebrity guests will be on hand to discuss both the scientific evidence and conclusive fact of the species on this planet. Bigfoot North airs live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Our topic today is bioarchaeology, and our guest, Dr. Kate Pachenkina from Queens College, is talking about uh, looking at ancient diseases and examining mortality rates of various populations. And I was just going to ask you, uh, what are some of the more interesting case studies that you have, either from your fieldwork in Peru or in China? Well, interesting skeletons, skeletons that stick in your mind and you remember them forever. Uh-huh. And maybe in and of themselves, they don't inform us that much about community in general, but as individuals, they're very interesting. Uh, so uh, my, my favorite, actually found it quite recently, is an animal rib sticking out of a woman's pelvis. Wow. And... Yeah, I when I found it, I just couldn't believe my eyes. I kept scratching my head. I mean, it's animal rib that is tightly lodged inside the front of the pelvis mm-hmm. and seems to come from, from inside. 
uh, I, I guess you could imagine if a woman sat on a rib accidentally and it sharpened and lodged in, but that's probably an unlikely scenario. Right. Yeah, so uh, we, we, I debated with myself whether it's a form of torture and execution. A woman clearly died as a result or whether it's attempt at a medical practice inserting inserting an intrauterine device as a means of contraception. Wow. Uh, the specimen comes from a Bronze Age uh, cemetery and uh, late Bronze Age when medical experimentation clearly begins in China. Uh, so it, it might be an interesting uh, medical case. Wow. Uh, yes, I, I'm still, I, I, I'm hoping to find a historic source that could direct me to a medical practice that could explain it. But this, and this is in a cemetery, right? Yeah, this is in a cemetery, which argues against it being an execution. Right. Uh, people course, rarely bury executed women right, at a regular cemetery. And, and she had adornments, she had little shell necklace, so she doesn't look like an executed individual. Mm -hmm. um, another interesting case is much earlier. A little dwarf from a small Neolithic settlement uh, that uh, probably also was paralyzed at least part of the life. Uh, and it's not not a typical dwarf you imagine, because most dwarfs you see is a chondroplastic dwarf. They have peculiar proportions. This right. was a completely proportional dwarf, uh, just very little individual, um, survived, and judging by the teeth, survived into mid-twenties. So you could argue for a happy life. It could have survived till 30, depending on how dental were progressed. Uh, but then examining uh, neck, uh, neck area, neck bones, we noticed that his neck is cracked. So he probably was killed, he or she, in mm -hmm. the end. Um, uh, so that's, that's another interesting case. What about other forms of trauma? Oh, Oh, that, yes, very interesting are puncture wounds uh, during uh, uh, Eastern Joe, during the Bronze Age, that are probably result either of knife attacks or of arrows shot. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, that they're usually in the leg bones. You'd expect if people are shooting at each other, they would be all over. But these are in leg bones, and they come from down below. So I'm imagining that people were standing on a roof or on a wall right. while defending their settlement and somebody was shooting at them from down below. And again, there was a treatment, so arrowhead is extracted and the wound is healing and person survives. Uh, so some of that. Uh, but so fractures are uh, fascinating. Uh, towards uh, uh, Bronze Age, uh, Chinese clearly start to realign fractures. Uh, 
Right. So when person breaks a forearm during the Neolithic, bones are usually out of alignment and there is a crooked arm as a result. But as you enter Bronze Age, there is probably a cast or some procedure to put bones uh, in a proper proper line. So, so how that takes us to the, you know the, our final segment here. How is the study of these ancient uh, diseases and healing practices? How are they relevant to us today? Oh, Joe, this is such an utilitarian question, and uh, there is certainly value to studying ancient diseases. But I think humans have the main reason to study them is that humans have this innate desire to know their past. This is what connects us all as a species, uh, going to museums. People travel across the globe to look at the Great Wall of China, and to look at the pyramids of Egypt, and to learn what the past and past lives were like. Uh, but of course, also, we can see um, how humans responded to drastic changes, drastic changes in the environment, how epidemics affected human communities, under what circumstances new pathogens, new diseases entered human population. Uh, in, in modern medical practice, uh, doctors rarely get an opportunity to see an untreated disease. How does it progress if it is not treated? How would human survive, heal itself? You know, many doctors assume that if you get an infection, bacterial infection, you would die without antibiotics. Uh, my physician actually told me that. So how uh -huh. do you expect it to get better if you don't take antibiotics? Uh, but we do have immune system, and it's quite possible, not that I recommend that you don't take antibiotics, <laughs> but you can recover by yourself. Your body has a capacity to recover without antibiotics. It's a gamble. You might not, but you don't have to die without treatment. Yeah, but it is a gamble, like you say. Oh, yeah. No, no, I'm by no means advocating not treating a disease. <laughs> Just not telling you that it's, it was a sentence, a death sentence in an Arabic community without a treatment. You could survive. And on that very, very interesting note, we're going to have to bring this discussion to an end. I want to thank my very special guest, Dr. Kate Pachenkina, for spending this hour with me. And I think we've all learned a tremendous amount or a significant amount on uh, pathogens, on uh, the course of human disease and, and uh, how populations have varied and, and adjusted to changes in environment and changes in uh, organization, human organization as a means sort of of explaining how these diseases have spread to some degree and uh, how we have made it for so long and I would like to uh, thank you very much for participating in our program thank you so much Joe thank you for interesting questions and on that note we will see you next time and good evening and stay well Thanks again.
again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. 